Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here today. This is my first pain week, so this is all new to me, and I didn't know everybody did catchy titles. I probably could have come up with a little fancier than the role of acute care prescribing the opioid epidemic. Uh, so as was mentioned, I'm an anesthesiologist. I'm a pain physician. Most of my care at this point in my practice is chronic pain, and I do a lot of research. I spend most of my time doing clinical research, and I've been around this space for a long time thinking about opioids, thinking about pain management, and most of my um, NIH funding to this point has been in the understanding of acute to chronic pain and patients that fail to respond to procedures done for pain. However, I do have some funding sources that are relevant today. We have an R1 from the NIH uh, and another program grant. Uh, we receive funding from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, institutional funding. Um, I have some unrelated disclosures. I, I've received funding from Neuros Medical for unrelated research. And I consult for a couple companies, and I won't talk at all about their products today. Um, and I have an unrelated patent that sadly has never paid me a dollar in my life. I started giving a lecture like this about two years ago. And around that time, I would say 78 Americans die every day from opioid-related overdose. And then 91 and then 115, and now I've just updated my slide last week, most of you probably saw the preliminary data from the CDC for 2017 suggesting that now 134 Americans die every day from opioid-related overdose. And I think the stories matter. I want to tell you a story. I, I went and spoke to a group of large employers on the west side of Michigan, and there was a woman in the front row whose story is very open. I can tell her story because she has publicly told her story. She sat quietly and listened, and she was periodically intently listening, and then she appeared to be texting and fading off, and I didn't realize at the time she was, telling no she was taking notes. She was very interested. Her husband it was a lifetime back pain sufferer. He went on to have lumbar spinal fusion, he received oxycodone for his lumbar spinal fusion. He became dependent and then addicted. He then transitioned onto heroin. And his high school daughter found him dead on the toilet at home. And sadly, this is just one of many stories that are like this. And I'm going to talk about opioids in a different way than most people do. I'm going to talk about acute care prescribing. I'm going to focus on surgery. We'll talk a little bit about dentistry. I'm not really going to touch on emergency medicine, but I think these things apply. And yet, I want to be super clear because many, many people in the audience might miss this point. As a pain physician, I'm not necessarily anti-opioids. I'm very much against the way we have prescribed opioids and used opioids in our country. However, I prescribe opioids to patients in my chronic pain clinic. I do so responsibly. I do follow the CDC guidelines and believe they're appropriate. However, with that said, I'm not here to say opioids are bad or have no role. I'm here to say that we can do better. These data are probably dated, and most of you in the room probably know this, but we go back to the peak of opioid prescribing in the U.S. We constituted 4% of the world's population, and yet we consumed 80% of the world's opioids. And as a chronic pain physician who studies pain, I can say with great certainty that this has not improved the care of pain patients in the United States. We have not better managed pain in the U.S. than other countries because of the vast use. We look at the number one prescription for, uh, in the U.S. around that same time was hydrocodone. We consume 99% of the world's hydrocodone. How do we get here? Well, 
I'm only going to spend a little time here because I'm an action person. I believe in change. I believe in moving forward. And I want to be clear, I believe I'm part of the opioid epidemic. I believe there is an opioid epidemic. I know this is controversial. I know there are people in the room that will say that's a hot-button term and you're just trying to create hype. I believe there is an opioid epidemic, and I help contribute to it. My well-intended care, my intent to try to care for my patients, led to my own overprescribing and my own challenges, and I think I helped create part of this problem, and I'm here today with solutions. We go back and we say, well, how did this happen? How many of you know this letter to the editor? Many of you will. New England Journal, 1980s. I haven't truncated it. I haven't just parsed it out. This is the entire letter to the editor. 40,000 patients, about 11,000 of whom received an inpatient opioid exposure, only four of whom had what was deemed a, quote, reasonably well-documented addiction, ergo opioids are not addictive. Now, the New England Journal is a powerful source. People look to the New England Journal and JAMA and other high-impact journals to teach us how to do things the right way, to vet the articles and to put out the best science. This is a letter to the editor. In fact, these authors came back just recently last year and wrote another letter to the editor that said, that wasn't our intent. We, we didn't mean that article, we didn't mean this single letter to say that opioids are not addictive. The average letter to the editor in 1980 would have been referenced 11 times. This article was referenced 600 times. And not surprisingly, in our early 90s, and this is well publicized, I'm not telling you anything you can't find in the lay press, but with the launch of OxyContin and the marketing that went into opioids in the early 90s, we see a big uptick in the number of references. And all those dark bars are affirmation that that letter to the editor proves that opioids are not addictive. And those little light shades are the only ones that say, hang on, time out, that's not what this means. Now you see it trailing off and you see this happening, but we, we sit around, we ask ourselves, how did we get here, why did this happen, right? We look to big journals for education and we realize now that we may have been pushed in the wrong direction. Now, these data are um, probably a few months old, this was a, another uh, publicly reported release showing that between 16 and 17, we saw another drop in prescribing, a, dro a, a consecutive drop since 2011. And then we saw a bunch of positives, what I would call positives. We saw changes across the country. We had declines in, in all the states. We had less people starting and more people going below that threshold of 90 oral morphine equivalents that the CDC recommends. So all these positives. Now, I can guarantee there are advocates in this room. There are people in this room that have hit, hit me on social media or done something to say, this next slide, this proves that opioid prescribing is not related to mortality. Because as we've seen this decline in prescribing, we've seen an uptick in mortality. Most of you know that what's driven mortality in our country over the last couple of years has largely been heroin and fentanyl. The Walter Whites of the world have learned how to make fentanyl in their bathtub, right? They know how to make this in their kitchens. They can get $800 worth of product from China and make $800,000 worth of fentanyl for the street. So this has changed the game. And so if we look at this slide and we choose our snapshot and we say, look, prescribing is going down and mortality is going up, we have the same false conclusion, as I said from that letter to the editor, where we said prescribing is not lead to mortality. This would also be a false conclusion because we need to look at the full picture. 
I had somebody tweet me to say, hey, you know, uh, association is not causation. I totally agree. That was a great epi lesson for me, right? The reality is this. In the early 90s, we had a major uptick in prescribing of opioids. And not long after, we saw an associated, strongly associated, overwhelmingly associated increase in mortality. And what we know now is that most people who move down the path of heroin and fentanyl start with a prescription opiate. Maybe not for them. Maybe not illicit prescription. Maybe I need to go to the story of the 525 Foundation and talk about Becky Savage and her two sons who on graduation night took, an opioid, took a couple opioids, drank a couple pills, and drank a couple beers, went to bed and didn't wake up in the morning, not prescribed to them, but part of excess prescribing. The prescribing and the pills that were sitting in medicine cabinets, maybe we talk about that. Whether licit or illicit, the reality is this. Those prescriptions come from me, and if you have a DEA license, they come from you, and we need to be more responsible. I'm going to shift, though. I'm going to shift away from chronic pain. I'm going to shift away from opioid use disorder because I'm a simple person. I like simple solutions. I like to do things that are easy because I think things that are easy can have impact. And so I'm going to talk to you about what we do around surgery. And if we talked about, say, any surgical unit in Las Vegas today, general surgery patients coming in, what do they look like? These are not knee replacement patients, not spine patients. What we know is that about 70 to 80% of these people are opioid naive, not taking opioids on a daily basis. About 8% would be bona fide opioid users, all the way from about 20 oral morphine equivalents to thousands. But there's probably 20 or 30% of people that pepper in the periodic oxycodone or hydrocodone, people that you would say are not quite opioid naive, but also are not as tolerant as maybe a chronic user. Like most groups, we started down this pathway. We took a group of patients with risk-adjusted outcomes from a statewide collaborative. These are nurse-extracted outcomes. And after adjusting for all the factors that had previously been associated with cost, morbidity, and utilization, just being categorized as an opioid user preoperatively was associated with about a $2,300 adjusted increased cost over a 90-day period, about a 4% increase in morbidity, and the morbidity made sense, surgical site infection, sepsis, myocardial infarction, anything for which a hyperinflamed state or a depressed immune system, because that's not controversial. Opioids depress the immune system, and they create a hyperinflamed state. All those things would be associated. Longer length of stay and more readmission. And my friend, my dear friend, who is a surgeon, he came in and like a surgeon, and apologies to all the surgeons in the crowd, you are my friends, but the reality is he walked in and he said, great, I'm going to take everybody off their opioids before surgery. And I snickered a little. I gave him a pat on the back. He is actually much smarter than I am. I am totally confident in this. And I said, that's really hard. In my pain clinic, I know that about half the people coming in to see me in the pain clinic will be taking opioids chronically. Almost 100% of them will have had some chronic exposure before coming to see me. And if I talk to people and I figure out that that risk-benefit ratio is poor, and I decide that we're going to go down a weaning pathway, that could be weeks, months, years, and in many patients will never happen. Right? And yet we also don't know in this generation of people now dependent and some addicted to opioids, we don't actually know if you take a person off their opioids if you reset all these things. What happens to the brain after that? Can we reset? Do we decrease morbidity? I think we probably do, but we don't have the evidence. And so it was around that time that our group made an important pivot. And some of you might be aware of this. We really looked at the world and we said, what is happening in the US today? NIH, FDA, CDC, the White House, everybody's focused on what to do with the chronic user, 
everybody's focused on how to deal with opioid use disorder and opioid addiction and chronic pain. And these are important issues, and I want to be crystal clear. These issues merit more funding, more effort, more research, and I respect all the people doing work because this is hard work. And in fairness, our group's in the chronic pain space. But around that time, we made this pivot and said, is there a bigger part? Are we missing a part of this narrative? Where is prevention? I said 70 to 80% of the people coming in today to that hospital with their predictable exposure are not taking opioids. And if we're going to look at the 20-year view and make sure that I don't come back to pain week five or 10 years from now and say 500 people die every day from opioid-related mortality, is there an opportunity to shepherd people through these predictable exposures and help them move through this pathway so that not only they are healthier, but that they don't pose risk to their family members and their communities through excess prescribing. And we just published this paper in Annals of Surgery, uh, done by one of our anesthesia fellows, but basically we looked at prescribing. Who, who wrote the first prescription over this seven-year period for patients not using opioids? In other words, who's providing the first exposure? Now, it's not surprising in the preamble to the CDC guidelines that primary care physicians and pain physicians started to behave differently. We started to prescribe differently. And that yellow bar at the bottom is kind of the other category. And what you see is that over that period, there was an increase in the relative contribution of surgery and dentistry. Surgeons and dentists matter more now than they did before. Not only that, surgeons prescribe the most. We see an uptick in prescribing. We just had a paper come out in JAMA Surgery last week showing that after the DEA after um, the rescheduling of hydrocodone from Schedule 3 to Schedule 2, we saw a significant and sustainable uptick in postoperative prescribing. I can no longer call it in for you, so now I'm just going to give you more in, with the concern that I'm not going to be able to get it to you if you need it. But these data don't actually tell the full story, because if you just look at the last two years, which what I would call the preamble to the CDC guidelines, because the last year of data I have in the national database, you see the surgeons stay up as do the dentists and even the emergency medicine physicians, who are, I think are actually doing well overall, they still actually see an increase in their, the amount they prescribe, while primary care physicians are decreasing their initial prescription. Bottom line, surgery and dentistry matter more today than they did five years ago. And we haven't really put any focus on these spaces. So as an anesthesiologist, it's really fun to go around the country and tell surgeons what they think. Right? I mean, we, if you're an anesthesiologist, you have to have kind of thick skin. No patient ever wakes up and says, thank you so much. I didn't throw up and I'm not hurting. They, they do give the surgeon praise. So you have to just sort of have a little bit of thick skin. But every now and then it's fun to sort of tease our colleagues. But, I, but I'll back up and say as a chronic pain physician, I think about all these same things. I worry about time. I worry about cost. I worry about burdening our clinic with lots of phone calls. We still worry about satisfaction. And at one point, we had sort of tied perverse incentives to this satisfaction, right? So we had actually tied payment incentives. And even as those have been removed, it still matters to that surgeon that Mrs. Smith goes back to their primary care physician and said, Dr. Brum, it's a great doctor, and you should send him more patients. So these things still matter. These are just two of the papers we've published. There have been other recent publications that show the same thing, including work not from our group. Brian Bateman, a health services researcher at, 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 um, the, at the Brigham, also showed this. But what basically we found in a couple different papers is that there is no association between the number of pills prescribed after surgery and patient satisfaction with their care, nor is there an association between the number of pills prescribed and the likelihood of refill. Now let me back up. 
Do I think people are ever dissatisfied? Absolutely. Do I think periodically that, that dissatisfaction is to a low number of pills? For sure. But is it data-driven? In other words, is this actually meaningfully associated? Can you see this through data? The answer is no. In the same way, do I think people call for refills? Yes. In fact, for an abdominal surgery condition, they call about 7 to 8% of the time. And it didn't matter whether we parsed out the individual surgeries or lumped them all together. The line is flat, equating it from all the way from six pills of, of, of the five milligram hydrocodone, the most commonly prescribed medicine, all the way to more than 60. The refill rate is exactly the same. We just did the same thing in knee and hip replacement. It is the same. The number of pills prescribed is not associated with how much, with the likelihood of refill. And while those are important topics, and I do believe that those, those concepts of refill rates, satisfaction have driven prescribing, I was really interested in this question. How often does that person coming in not using opioids before surgery transition on to becoming what might be called a new persistent user, new chronic user, prolonged persistent user? There's lots of different words that have been used. And this is probably the article that got the biggest splash from our group. We, we found that about 6% of people not using opioids in the year prior, kept filling long past what would be deemed normal surgical recovery. And that there was no difference between major surgery and minor surgery. So whether you had a varicose vein stripping, a hemorrhoid surgery, or whether you had an open abdominal incision for a colectomy or have a hysterectomy, the rates were the same. Now, I wasn't surprised by that because we had actually published this paper the year prior, knee and hip replacement, 4% of the hips and 8% of the knees who were not using the prior to surgery kept using six months later, and there was no association between whether their knee or hip got better or worse or stayed the same. These are prospectively collected data using the gold standard measure for knee and hip pain, stiffness, and function. That wasn't associated at all. So what's happening here? Well, we think some people have other chronic pain conditions. We know that for most of the um, FDA-approved opioids, those trials are about 12 weeks, and if you're a responder, you definitely respond for 12 weeks. Now, the trial has certainly had controversy, but there was a trial in JAMA this year showing that in that 12-month outcome, opioids were not efficacious for patients with low back pain or, or osteoarthritis, right? So, so backing up, I do believe that some patients now start to use these medications after surgery for other pain conditions. In fact, we have some prospectively collected data, not enough to report, to suggest this to be true. We think some people use it for sleep, some for mood, and mood doesn't always mean getting high. We certainly know that among some of those people who misuse or even abuse their medications, they say it's a leveling effect. And then after that leveling, eventually they're avoiding withdrawal. And that's when you start to see more addiction behavior. 13% of hands, 13% of Patients undergoing um, spine surgery, this is Rick Dale, this is the only data up here not from our group, but just to show that it's generalizable. 4.8% of teens and adolescents undergoing elective pediatric surgery. That data bothers me. That's bothersome. 10% of curative cancer surgery and 19% of probably the most challenging cohort, women undergoing breast surgery, where we do see some post-operative changes and some post-operative care. So certainly complicated, but I do think our cancer exception in the way that we talk about opioids might be problematic. We often talk about opioids and we say in non-malignant pain, dot, 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 right? 
But maybe that happened because we do that. We have now empowered patients to say, I have cancer, I should get opioids, and empowered providers to say, cancer is an appropriate diagnosis for opioids. And I believe that in some cases, cancer is an appropriate diagnosis for opioids. However, I think we also need to remember, in the U.S. today, one of our major problems is cancer survivorship. That 10% is curative cancer surgeries. These are cancers that were effectively cut out. That person is now cancer-free. The incisions are similar to the 6%. This is problematic. And then these are data that just popped. We just put this out in JAMA recently. Um, we looked at teens and adolescents, young adults, 13 to 30, undergoing wisdom tooth extraction. Done three and a half million times electively in the US each year. 78% of kids received an opioid. And if you looked at those kids who received an opioid and filled an opioid compared to those that didn't, after adjusting for pain diagnoses, demographics, psychiatric diagnoses, medical comorbidities, and the impaction status of the tooth, there was an adjusted 2.7 times odds of becoming a new chronic user if you filled an opioid. That exposure mattered. So what's our conclusion there? And we talked a little bit about this before, and this is kind of new work for us. We are full in working with dentistry. Dentists have an advantage. They have randomized control trials to show that opioids, in comparison to acetaminophen and ibuprofen around the clock, are no better. And if you, if you add in morbidity of nausea and constipation, they're actually worse. Many of you have had your wisdom teeth removed, and I did, and I went home with a big bottle of hydrocodone. I think I used one or two. In a, in a time where we can say Tylenol and ibuprofen around the clock is equal efficacious or maybe superior to an opioid, why are we exposing 13-year-old kids to opioids? What is that radical next step in dentistry that is still patient-centered care? I care about patients. I care about people. I care about appropriate pain management. And giving a kid an opioid when you have randomized control trials to show that they're not efficacious is not appropriate or attentive pain management. So can we improve prescribing? Well, I told you I like to be in a simple space. I like simple stuff. And so the answer is yes. And so I'm going to talk about one of our early efforts. Our program that I'm talking about today is just now about two years old. We're coming up on our second birthday. And early on in this effort, we knew we would be going around our state initially and then eventually around the country and talking about opioids, but we didn't actually know what was happening in our own house. And I could show you the waterfall plot. We talk about it openly. I'm not here to tell you what we do in the ivory tower or tell you how you're doing it wrong and I'm doing it right. Actually, quite the opposite. The University of Michigan, our, our, our logo is leaders in the best. Well, we were leaders in the best in prescribing opioids after surgery when compared to our peer institutions. We were terrible. And actually, it turns out all academic institutions prescribe more opioids. And if you look at PAs and NPs, they prescribe about 20% more than their physician peers. Why? These are the people who are reporting to someone and answering the phone calls. And so we looked at lap gallbladder prescribing. We just said, well, wonder what's happening after lap gallbladder surgery. And this is what we found. After laparoscopic gallbladder removal, we prescribed on average about 45 to 50 pills. Now, if that number surprises you, I looked at the data for Truven, national represented data set for 2016, and the average is still 50 pills, okay? So we prescribed about 45 to 50 pills. Any guesses from the audience on how many pills people reported using after gallbladder surgery? 
10, 8, some good numbers. So the median was about 6. The mean was 10, whoever, whoever hit the t- But the mean was skewed. We had some outliers. So six pills. Now, we looked at it and we said, you know, 15 pills would satisfy 75% of people. We're early effort. We're trying to engage people. Going from 50 to 15 would be important. And so we did that. We made recommendations. We had a, this was a, done by a, a, a medical student, now a surgery intern. And he did a voiceover PowerPoint and said, let's go from 50 to 15. Chair of surgery makes all the surgery residents watch it. I'm not saying this is a scalable model, but it just shows you how simple this is. And sure enough, we looked back, 15 pills with this super tight confidence interval. I mean, like 15 pills with almost no average, and I don't present this yet, but these data will be coming out soon. We see spillover effect. Now armed with a little bit of data, but we didn't say anything about lap-api or thyroid or lap-gastric sleeve. We didn't say anything about those. But now armed with a little bit of data, we saw a decrease in prescribing in all those conditions as well. Now, what's interesting is we gave people 15, and then they reported only using four. Now, two pills is not a big deal, but now project this out. Let's talk about some of our surgeries where we use a lot of medication, like spine surgery and knee replacement. That difference is meaningful. There was no change in the refill rate, 4% to be before, 3% to follow. No change in self-reported pain. People rated their pain the same. And what we found is that, you know, you give people less and they take less. Now, I will say that I'm very blessed to have a social psychologist as a program manager. And what we found is she came in and said, yeah, this is really obvious. This is totally obvious. This is called anchoring and adjustment. This is social psychology 101. This is mainly the food literature. I know we walk around these casinos, and if you go into one of those buffets, you're going to eat more. There's more food in front of you. You're more likely to have dessert, right? If they put croissants out there, I don't have a croissant or a chocolate croissant every morning, but if they put croissants out there, I'd probably eat one. Why do we think it's different that simply giving patients 90 pills and just saying, let's just give them enough not to run out, something I taught people, something I was taught, why do we think that that's okay? The same thing's happening. We're conditioning patients to use more pills with no benefit. What's the impact of the single intervention at a single institution? Less pills, 370 patients, 35 pills less per patient. That's like 13,000 pills not in the community. That's a really long opioid drive for me. That's a big Saturday. That's a big intervention. We work in a unique platform. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan and, and Michigan as a state is kind of strange. We have Medicare, we have Medicaid, and we have Blue Cross. Um, they are effectively the single dominant private payer in our state. And more than a decade ago, they had the foresight to say, if we could bring hospitals together and talk about quality and raise, raise the bar here and make everybody better, we'll decrease our own costs. And so they have been funding mainly Michigan-driven, University of Michigan-driven, but statewide collaborative structures, largely around surgical surgery, um, but also emergency medicine, primary care. And I take the CDC mortality map from a few years ago when I, I represent HOPE, because these are all the hospitals that now we regularly interact with. 73, every major hospital in the state of Michigan. We went to Michigan Department of Health and Human Services and said, let us use this untapped platform to get real-world prescribing, understand real-world consumption. We see a lot of single-center work coming out. The, the literature is now being flooded with groups that are coming out and saying, at our institution, we gave 10 pills and they used six, and that's great, just like what we did. 
we now said, well, we could do better than that. Your institution might look a lot different than mine. In fact, it probably does. You might be in a community hospital. We want data that's representative. So we want to use this platform to be, as a real-world data collection. But even more importantly, we want to rapidly transform our state to be the safest state in the country to have surgery, which it already is from a surgical outcomes perspective. But now let's do that for opioids as well. And so we want to avoid this 7- to 10-year lag that we know goes from discovery to implementation. And so we've lived this. Um, these are the first evidence-based prescribing recs that were released. Okay, so these are from 30-plus hospitals. We released them in October 2017. You don't need to write them down. They're easily accessible from our website. Um, and they update. So don't take a picture of them and start doing this and making this your new norm because we want to update them. We, we actually lived this. Um, so four months later, new data, including new procedures. We decreased our prescribing recs for many surgeries anywhere from 20 to 50% based on data, based on patients, based on taking care of patients and, doing, and, and really attending to patients' care, but also adding surgeries. And we aspire to do this. Now, you've seen other prescribing recs come out. Most of these are expert opinion or single center. The, uh, you know, I, my, my friends at Johns Hopkins, they're great people. Um, they came out with their evidence-based prescribing recs. Those are best opinion, right? Those are groups that sat, a group of surgeons sat around and said, how many pills? And I will say, in a void of evidence, that is better than nothing. So I respect what they're doing. But these are based on true patient consumption, and they'll be updated. We're interested in this 72% of pills that go unused. Mark Bickett followed this first um, report by Hill and Barth at Dartmouth. They, they were the first to sort of publicize this concept that most of what we write goes unused. Right? We didn't actually know this until not many years ago. I will say, um, if it makes you feel better, we went to Denmark and Sweden. What I learned is they prescribe a lot less. They also don't know what, how many pills people use. In, in, in Denmark and Sweden, if you have a, a complication, including a surgical site infection, you call your primary care doctor. And everybody in Sweden and Denmark also makes jokes about orthopedic surgeons, and they're exactly the same as the jokes we make here. Those are, that's what I learned from that trip. But this 72% of people is problematic. So if we think about just our state alone, 33 pills in excess, 45 pills becomes an amazingly consistent average across surgeries, 1.8 million surgeries per year. That could be like 62 million unused pills each year in the US, just from, each year in Michigan alone, just from surgical prescribing. I saw a recent estimate that suggested it was more like 3 billion pills nationally prescribed in excess. These become accessible. The 525 Foundation, Becky Savage, her two of her four boys, her two older boys who both died, they find pills from excess. When I was introduced by my friend, who is a surgeon, he gave me the most thoughtful introduction because he said, you know, I know I didn't care for that, those kids or their parents, but I wondered if it was my excess prescribing after surgery that led to that party and those pills. If I project this 62 million pills out, this slide was a lot better before Notre Dame beat us, but it's still an important... <laughs> We still can actually totally turn this around, so I'm, I'm still positive. If we look at this, this is, this is Ann Arbor's biggest church, we, and we project this out for the hydrocodone, um, the, the area of a hydrocodone tablet, this is what that one year's excess prescribing would look like. And we would need about three quarters of our hockey arena, just from surgery, just in excess. This is not attentive care. This is not healthy care. 
We know that if we look at kids 12 and older who reported misusing or abusing an opioid in the year prior, 55% of them get them from friends or family members. About 17% have them left over from their own care. The bad hombres that we look at, the, that we worry about, they're about 4%. Drug dealers represent and serve the right end of the curve, the people that have moved far down the path. That first experimentation is easy. I, I gave a talk for our local, one of our local high schools, and I said, uh, how many of you could go home and within an hour access an opioid? Immediately, without any pause, 75% of kids raised their hands. Do I think that 75% of those kids were abusing opioids? No, absolutely not. But they had thought about it, they had processed it, and they knew exactly where to find them. This is a problem. And so we're committed to fixing this um, problem. And this is just one way that we want to go about this. And this is a controversial way. But we do opioid drives. And these opioid drives predate our um, efforts in Michigan Open. This was a community service effort. I run a separate large research team. And one of the ways we come together as a team is by doing service for our community. We came together with the Ann Arbor Police Department about three and a half years ago, and we had our first drive where we got 30 pounds of pills, and that was amazing. And through this statewide platform, we've now, through time, been able to expand these drives around our state, and we have our fall drive coming up. But these 27 cities came together for one four-hour period. We got 2,300 pounds of pills. We estimate about 54,000 unused opioids. Dating, some of these pills date back to 1976, regularly sealed pills from the 80s and 90s. And so I'm going to pause for a second because I can't have you go home and do this tonight because many of you don't live here. But when you go home and you're brushing your teeth that first night you go to bed, please take a moment. Please go through your medicine cabinet. Sure, you don't have kids. You've got painters, contractors, people coming through your house. Maybe you've got good kids. Do your kids have friends? Maybe you've got young kids. Do you ever get babysitters? Right? Get them out of your house. Get rid of them. Look for safe disposal sites. We want to put ourselves out of business, but we realize that that one ton of pills, that's a drop in the ocean. Right? What we did and what we hope we did was create awareness in the community, and awareness in these communities that leaving unused pills in your medicine cabinet is not good for you, your family, or your community. We are serious about change. One of the ways we've gone about making change or one of the ways that we've tried to go about making change, I actually should go back and let you know, we have a toolkit for this, including a police toolkit on how to do your own drive. And we do check-in phone calls, and we actually teach sites to do this. This is actually how we've done the 27 sites. And we actually have a few sites outside of our state that are going to be joining us for our fall drive. It is open. We are open for service, right? It, we will absolutely help you. If you're inspired by this or you know somebody that would do this in your community, we'll teach you how, and it's not expensive. So in that same vein of trying to help the community, we made these, we made these brochures. We figure that in an era where we have 20 years of bad education for physicians and nurses, we've taught people the wrong things about the risks and benefits of opioids, how can we all of a sudden just tell doctors and nurses to, to educate better? Well, they don't know, right? So we wanted to make sure things are accurate. And so we have made a brochure. This is just one example. I'm trying to figure out my best way to point here. This is one example of a brochure. This is about surgical prescribing. And just so you know, you can send us on our website a high-resolution logo of your hospital or your practice. We will put it on the front of the brochure and send it back within one week for free and clear use no, no ties. We have 100 and about 180 health systems in about 15 states and one Irish outpost that are using these brochures all free of charge. 
This is totally free. There are no catches. We're committed to doing something different. This is just one example. This is what is an opioid. Talks a little about using opioids safely, knowing the risks of opioid addiction, and thinking about goals. And on the back, it gives some information about safe storage. And in our state, we've actually mapped every DEA registered disposal site. In, in our state so that you can find it, but outside of the state, we'll replace that with the DEA map. Free and clear use, immediately available. You'll have them within a week if you go to the website. In the same way, we have some information to empower patients to go in and talk to their providers about safe pain control. And then some other things that might seem soft, but I think are powerful and need to be explored, including mindfulness breathing and teaching patients beforehand how to do mindfulness breathing, and on the back, a resilience exercise. These are, again, free. Now, early on when I gave this talk, people said, well, chronic pain patients and chronic opioid users are the problem, and that's what I need help with. And we are doing work in this space. Well, I haven't spoken much about this because it is incredibly difficult. So everybody tells you how to manage patients after surgery that are on opioids, and that is all based on best opinion. Anyone who tells you that they've got evidence-based evidence-based recommendations on how to manage the chronic pain patient after surgery is giving you best opinion. Sure, there's a little bit of evidence out there, but this is a really challenging scenario. We actually looked at the first 35,000 patients into a biorepository. I have a large team that recruits into a biorepository. We've recruited about 60,000 patients into an opt-in biorepository that's used for all kinds of health research. We know about 23% of those people coming in for surgery were using opioids. We see some surgeries that were more common. And when we look at the opioid users compared to those that weren't using opioids, we see higher rates of substance use disorders, sleep apnea, psychological distress, and widespread body pain. And we know certainly that spine and joint replacement are our biggest players. And so we have actually just received a, a supplemental grant from the NIH where we want to take those 60,000 people, about 80% of whom are opioid naive. We want to link their prescription records. Now we are actually going to also get our PDMP records to their health records and their genetic data. All these patients have been run on a full GWAS platform. And to ask this question, is there a genetic association between that exposure and that outcome of new chronic use? So I'm hoping that we can report, and we have, we have reached out, and we have some partners nationally that we hope to bring into this effort. So I've given you a touch of what we do. We've done a lot in a couple of years. Um, more broadly, I, I do work in chronic pain. I'm interested in centralized pain. I'm interested in the difficult patients. But what I've given you today hopefully gives you hope that there is something really simple that can be done today, that we can think about opioid prescribing differently today. And that while I gave you prescribing recommendations for surgeries and specific prescribing recs, I actually want you to think radically. I actually want you to go back and look, if you're a surgeon, and say, are there some surgeries for which patients just shouldn't get exposure? The answer is yes. It's an unambiguous yes. Every lecture I give, somebody from the back of the crowd who either has enough missing hair like me or maybe a little more or enough gray hair will come and say either in my country before I came here or when I started my practice, we never prescribed for this and now we do and I don't feel like people are doing better. And the answer is they're not. And so while we do need to decrease prescribing and our over-prescribing of surgery, I really believe that our next big step is to look at those surgeries for which we can completely eliminate surgery. We want to expand our precision health initiative. We're actually going as far as to reach out across campus. We've now brought in the folks from the arts. They've made really powerful um, songs, creative content that we're hoping to target to middle schoolers to teach about the risks of opioid dependence. Um, I've probably talked to about 10,000 providers over the last year. That is small. That's a small number. Um, and we really need to start reaching out to nurses and social workers and really re-educating. Community outreach can't just be pill drives. We need to reframe the conversation. 
We need providers to be in a better position when they start caring for these patients. We need patients to come in not necessarily expecting that opioids are going to make them pain-free after surgery because one of the things we need to teach people is that surgery in dentistry does have some pain associated, and that doesn't mean that opioids are there to take it all away. And we need to inform policy. Right now in, in, in our U.S. government, there are probably about, there's probably about an opioid bill per day proposed and in your states as well. These are well-intended policymakers who are trying to make a difference. However, very few people are doing a good job in forming that policy. So maybe you're inspired by our program. Maybe you know somebody who would be inspired by our program. I didn't come here to raise money, but I will be clear. We need additional funding and philanthropic support to go to the next level to take this Michigan-based platform and make it national, and we can do this with additional funding. So we can make new prescribing recs. From that, we think that prescribing will decrease when we decrease prescribing, we think we'll also decrease consumption, and then we'll update our recommendations. But we'll do this in a patient-centered way that monitors patient satisfaction and patient-reported outcomes, not through blunt policy of day limits or pill limits. We're going to do this in a way that makes sense. These are my colleagues. Uh, Mike Inglesby is a transplant surgeon. He is, uh, directs medical education, is a forward thinker, and wanted to fix this yesterday. Jen Walji is a health services researcher, plastic surgeon, hand surgeon, and easily the most effective person I know. Uh, this is our team. We've grown pretty rapidly. This doesn't include all the terrific uh, surgery fellows we have that have done a lot of our work. Uh, we have some research assistants, a really incredible statistical core. We've got a regulatory manager and um, a community engagement specialist, admin, admin sport. And while we do work hard, we do also like to have fun. So with that, I think we have a little bit of time for questions. Um, I haven't actually looked at our Timeline, we're good for questions, about 10 minutes, great. So hopefully we can ask the spirited questions, and uh, I really appreciate your time and attention. Yes? Efficient and effective drug disposal is lacking, and the answer is yes. There are a couple of products that have come out. Um, one of the products uh, that, and I, I have no affiliation with this company, is Deterra. There are also other activated charcoal products um, that allow for home disposal. I didn't talk about it today, but we do have data to say that those products do improve the likelihood or increase the likelihood of self-reported disposal. I totally agree with you. The FDA does on their website actually recommend flushing. I don't recommend flushing. And the reality is, is right now I know there was an article that just came out showing that the oysters off the shore of, um, uh, of uh, Seattle now have detectable oxycodone levels, right? So, so flushing is not the answer. There are ways to do this in a safe, a safe and efficient way. And we do have some of that on our website as well. And it is an area where we want to grow. So pharmacy take-backs are, are a great question, a great topic. The margin on, on medications isn't great right now. We've, we've now made it harder for our big chain pharmacies to make money with each prescription. They probably care more that you buy toilet paper while you're there, right? Um, and, and it is a lot of work to do this. Um, there have been discussions nationally on whether opioid take-back drives should be uh, mandated for not only the pharmacies, but for pharmaceutical companies. Uh, the arguments made have been that the, you don't actually get very many opioids and that they're not effective. I would argue that if you do anything that improves the community awareness of the ill, the Ill effects of, of unused opioids in your medicine cabinet, you've done something positive. And I think that that's a broken argument. And I, I, I welcome anyone in the crowd that disagrees with that to talk, but, but I, I, I will tell you, I think that that concept that we don't need to do pill drives because the yield for opioids is, is low is a poor one. Um, whether pharmacies, there are a few of the chains. I know Walgreens has been talking about taking um, 
taking opioids back. Uh, it's just challenging. They have to put a lot of, of policies in place, and there's costs associated. It would have to be mandated, and I think there's just really still the question of who's going to pay for that because the pharmacies don't feel it's their responsibility either. Yes, ma'am. When you do the take-backs, do you encourage people to leave the labels on the bottles? Great. So the question is, do we encourage people to take the labels off the bottles when we do the take-backs? We, um, we really allow people to do what they want to do, which is um, we bring um, Sharpies, and we will um, – um, scratch it out and then recycle their bottles or we'll dump them out and give them their bottles back. Um, our police have asked us not to um, put the, uh, just the pills in because they started to get leak and so, so we've started to try to figure out other, other ways around this. But um, they prefer it in the bottles. We really have multiple mechanisms including we provide Ziploc bags for people to do that. So pill counting would be a problem. Uh, we offer people the opportunity to count to tell us, and we do rough estimates. I mean, this is this is community service. I put a date up there, but the reality is, is that it, you know you could argue, Chad, that was uh, 100,000 pills or it was 20,000. I'm not going to argue with you, right? Because the reality is, we have an estimate, um, but we don't. We, we're not a thousand percent sure what what what's happening there. I, I do think that it's important though, because people do. What I will say is, I think it's pretty darn close to the 54,000 pills, right? And and uh, it's not just pills, it's patches, it's other things, it's things with high potency. I mean, I've, I've, I brought, I had a woman bring back a stack of fentanyl patches that stacked that high because it was a cancer care, the escalation, and then the last supply came through and then the person passed away and the medicine cabinet was full of fentanyl patches. I mean, huge, huge, huge risk. Yes, sir, in the middle. Yeah, so, so there's two, two separate questions there, right? So who, who's going to become dependent or addicted and who's going to get high? And I think that they're questions that both need to be probed. That's work that we're doing in our group. There are some data out there to say, uh, and including data from our group. So right now, um, the effect sizes, at least the national claims data, are not enormous because you're dealing with, with diagnoses, right, that you have ICD-9 codes to deal with. Uh, what we see is other pain diagnoses, um, psychiatric comorbidities, including depression, anxiety, mainly negative affect. Uh, but previous substance use disorder, it's amazing. Right now, surgeons don't ask about opioid use disorder, heroin use. That's not part of our normal surgical screening. It's something we're trying to implement our team is to, is to create a pathway because if you're going to have people do it, they have to also know what to do with the information if they find that the person does have opioid use disorder. And so we need to help surgeons with that pathway. They need a place to go. Um, right? I mean, we, it wasn't very many years ago they didn't want to check blood sugars because if you find that a person's got a high blood sugar, you now have to manage it, right? It, it's, it's silly, but it's true. I mean, it's, it's, it's sad, but it's true. Um, so previous substance use disorders, including other substance use disorders, um, you know, tobacco smoking may be an indicator. Other pain diagnoses and negative affect are probably the things that are most strongly associated right now. Some people have weakly associated the OPRM1 genetic polymorphism. I, I'm waiting to see if that replicates because I really think that's going to be more maybe about efficacy. The other question about high is a different question, and that's another one we want to probe probe because um, this is concept of subjective effects and how does it make you feel. Not just how high does it make you feel, how sick does it make you feel, how itchy does it make you feel. And there's some, there's some really cool work happening at WashU around that space um, uh, that I think could be uh, hopefully lead us there. But it's clearly a place we need to go to understand risk before exposure. In the back.
For which population? Yeah, we do actually have um, data that will be released uh, next month for knee and hip replacement. Do you want a sneak peek? 50 pills for, in opioid knee patients, 50 pills of oxycodone for knee replacement, 30 for hips. And I think that's still too high. That's what I'm going to recommend. And that's based on data. That's based on multiple data from multiple um, hospital systems, and we're going to be releasing that next month. Um, I'm going to someday undermine a publication. Some publisher is going to come, some reviewer is going to come back and say, well, that data, you've already put that data out there, and we're not going to publish it now. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that because if we're going to wait on the one-year lag to change prescribing, then I'm not, I'm not living my mission, right, which is to say we can change prescribing now. So that's what we're going to recommend. 50 pills of oxycodone for the national average right now for knee replacements, about 100 for both. Um, so so uh, 50 for, for knees and about 30 for hips. And there are lots of patients that go home and take zero after hip replacement, and there's about 10% of the knees that go home and take zero there's a lot of people who don't need a prescription. Uh, when you go to your genetic studies, are you looking into the opioid-induced hyperalgesia? We aren't actually going to probe opioid-induced hyperalgesia in our first passes of the genetic data. OIH is an interesting uh, disorder. We've studied it. Um, I believe in it. I totally believe in it. Um, measuring it and understanding it clinically, knowing the difference um, between OIH and the underlying pain, OIH intolerance is challenging. Having studied it, including do, done uh, experimental pain testings on patients with pain and opioid-induced hyperalgesia, it's really confusing. It's really hard. And uh, OIH is a real thing. Um, and, uh, you know, do I think we might do it in time, and do I think it'll be part of our work in future? Yes. Is it part of our sh short-term work? No. You're talking about callback studies? Yeah. That's why our repository is so awesome. We're going to do that. But yeah, we will do deeper phenotyping. Yes, yes, sir. So um, the answer is yes, but not the way you meant for it to be. So primary care. So what we're looking at right now is the concept of transitions of care. I didn't show the data, but we know among the people who go on to become new chronic users, Right? Among those people that go on to become new chronic users, which I didn't say it, but I should have said it, is easily the most common complication after elective surgery. Right? So there's no complication that comes anywhere to six, close to 6 to 13%. Right? But we actually see that those patients are initially prescribed and filled by surgeons, 80%, 90% of the And then after three months, what does it become? Chronic condition, right? Where do chronic conditions go? Back to primary care. Are you a primary care physician? So you've had this, right? You've lived this. And, and then you're hosed. Three months later, they're now very dependent. I'm not saying they're all addicted, right? I mean, we, we, we will use different words. They don't necessarily all have opioid use disorder, but they're dependent. And now you're in a really challenging situation. And so what we want to do is start to tighten up that transition to care. And then as we talk about the chronic opioid user, thinking about that pathway from preoperative optimization, which may include some weaning, but it may not, a care pathway that gets them back to the person who's normal, their usual prescriber as soon as possible because we believe that that's going to avoid the 200% you know, dose escalation that happens. The question around primary care acute care prescribing recs, um, kind of. We have affiliated groups and groups that we're working with and some people like uh, uh, that are 
probably doing some work like this in our injury center that we partner with. Um, the problem is you see such a smorgasbord of conditions. I mean, you have to know a lot of stuff, right? We, we, we get to be pretty simple. We get to be pretty compartmentalized. And you have to know a lot about a lot of people, right? And that is a much more challenging scenario. The thing about surgery is the, the things that predict whether and how much opioid a person will get after surgery today are the kind of surgery they're having and the person that's caring for them. There's almost nothing else that predicts how much opioid or whether a person gets an opioid. What kind of surgery are you having and um, you know, are, are, uh, who, who's, who's caring for you? Those are the two things. So, yeah. So another place where we don't have recommendations, but we want to grow. How do you handle how do you handle uh, perioperative prescribing uh, and perioperative pain management for patients on, with opioid use disorder on medication assisted treatment? Um, what I can say right now is this is one of the areas where um, number one, we need surgeons to start to even ask the question. We have many people come through our health system with known opioid use disorder on medication-assisted treatment where it's not in their record at all. Not necessarily in our health system, but just nationally as we can look around the state. We need detailed care pathways, and it's also scary because that person who's prescribing oftentimes doesn't know that person's coming in for surgery, that they're going to undergo this acute perturbation, they're going to have this acute painful episode, and they might be getting another prescription. Nobody's even talked about that, right? So... Um, my, I, I think that there's a little bit of dealer's choice here in terms of how we take care of that, but the most important pieces are communication. The prescriber who's, who's managing the opioid use disorder in the medication tr treatment needs to know and be part of that pathway. It has to, and it doesn't happen now. And if we just did that one thing, that would be a radical change in perioperative prescribing for patients with opioid use disorder, and it would mean much better care and outcome. I've been sort of ignoring this side of the room. Has anybody had their hand up? In the back there. I'll get you next. Give them five pills. That does it, too. So, I mean, like, the reality is if you get, if you get 90 pills and your, your SIG says 1 to 2 Q4 PRN, you could take a lot of pills. If you get five pills, because that's what most people actually use, you're not going to take 1 to 2 Q4 PRN. So I, I, I agree with you. And the, um, what's even worse is the 1 to 2 Q4 to 6. Like, we've now given, like, like we can, like, write down all the different algorithms that the person can decide, right? That's the... We're just, we're just north of you. We're, we'll be happy to help. Even, even though you got that bad football team, we'll, we'll, we'll help you out. Yes, sir. I, I have the microphone. I get the final word there. Sure.
Sure. What kind of physician? Are you a physician? Pharmacist. Pharmacist. OK, great. Pharmacist, you have a key role. You guys might be the most important people that we're not yet engaging the right way. So you, you, could, you could do incredible things to change how we. Sure. 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 So anesthesiologists and their role. Well, what we, what, we don't, what we know is we don't know. There is this hashtag that's running around, hashtag opioid-free anesthesia. We don't actually know if that matters. In other words, does eliminating opioids from the anesthetic, this is a, you, you asked a complicated question, you're going to get a complicated answer. Does, does eliminating opioids from the anesthetic matter? What we know is that remifentanil probably causes an acute hyperalgesia, but that may only last for a short period of time and may not matter long term. Um, in the same way, we know that like a single-shot nerve block preoperatively definitely improves pain and outcome in terms of acute recovery, but there's no association with changes in long-term opioid dependence or prescribing. Why? We have uncoordinated care. We could take a shot at the anesthesiologist. Sure, I'll, I shoot at my own team all the time. The reality is this, though. I could do an incredible job of managing a patient throughout their perioperative course, and there's still, the, what did I say, the two factors that are associated with the number of pills a person prescribed, the kind of surgery they had and the person, the person caring for them. That surgeon is still going to write 40 or 60 or 90 pills because every time they write 40 or 60 or 90 pills. One of the most important contributions that I didn't mention today, Hill and Barth, again, Dartmouth group, they found that the most predictive factor in how many pills a person would use was the number of pills they used in the day before they left. That is not rocket science. Uh, Barth and I were just emailing back and forth before I came down here this morning. And I love that article. I love that article. It is so genius, right? If you're in the hospital and you take zero pills on your last day and you go home, you know what you take? Zero pills. If you take a few pills, you take a few pills. If you take a little bit more, you take a little bit more. So I think there's a next level of our prescribing recs. The challenge in prescribing recs is this. How complicated can I make them and still make them so that people will follow them? That's a challenge. Do I think anesthesiologists need to have a bigger role? Absolutely. I'm writing a review article that's going to be published in anesthesiology, I hope, that says exactly that, that we need to embrace our role. We need to limit opioids perioperatively, even if I don't have evidence that fentanyl doesn't matter. If they don't need fentanyl, don't use fentanyl, right? Postoperatively, let's not give it so liberally in the, in the PACU, and let's be mindful of not dose escalating people rapidly in the perioperative setting, because if we're going to take the Hill and Barth data and say, does this matter? Well, sure, if we do a rapid dose escalation, that might matter, and that might have a long-term implication. Yes, ma'am. I just want to make a comment that we can do a lot better job Correct. No, patient education is probably the most important piece. I have a community engagement manager. She's amazing. Uh, I just hired another person to work with her. And if I was to say, what else would I do with philanthropic support? I would hire more community engagement specialists. We also have an implementation nurse. We need to re-educate nurses. Nurses are awesome. Nurses have a huge role here. But nurses also tell patients a lot of things that are wrong. Stay ahead of the pain. How many people have been told stay ahead of the pain? You have no pain tonight. You have undiagnosed sleep, sleep apnea. You're on a low-dose benzodiazepine, and you don't have any pain, and you're going to bed. Take two pills? I mean, is that what we're really telling people? Right? It is what we're telling people, and it's wrong. Right? So we all need to be re-educated, including patients. And I think we need to reframe public expectation with the hope that people come in and providers aren't worried, like, this person's angry because I'm not prescribing. How am I doing on time? Okay.
I'm a little over. Um, I, did you have your hand up? I'm sorry, sir. No? Maybe it's just, yeah, right here, sir. Where are you? Yeah, I work in rural Alaska, but I work for one of the native corporations. Interesting. Alaska's been hit pretty hard in this, in this epidemic. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think these closed health systems, so I'm going out to Geisinger this fall. I'm excited about that. I think it's a health system that has an opportunity, right? So these closed health systems, Kaiser, et cetera, the, that opportunity to integrate care is important. And primary care physicians, while this is about surgical and dental prescribing, um, should be excited on this opportunity. I will tell you, we, we, we've implemented some payment incentives for our surgeons. We're trying to implement payment incentives for the primary care physicians as well. So I see them looking at their watches in the back. I think we'll probably go ahead and uh, wrap up. I'll be happy to stay behind afterwards and take questions as well, though. I'm happy to finish. I didn't mean to cut you off there. I'll be happy to finish.